We kind of finished up with uh, John Calvin last time, talking about a lot of the good things that, that, uh, not John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther. (laughs) We're getting ready to talk about John Calvin. Uh, the good things that Martin Luther did in that he kind of got the ball rolling a little bit on understanding that uh, the, the stronghold that the Catholic Church had at that time was uh, absolutely in error compared to what the Bible teaches, and he saw some problems. Uh, but again, let's keep in mind the problems that Martin Luther saw. He didn't see a problem with the sale of indulgences, he saw a problem with the abuse of indulgences. He didn't see a problem with the confessional. He saw a problem with the misuse of the confessional. didn't have an issue with uh, infant baptism. A whole number of things that that he didn't have an issue with, but we have to give him credit in that he began to open the eyes of a lot of people through his writings, and they began to embrace what he wrote about. And uh, we ended uh, last time... On the, on the idea that uh, he didn't really want this movement rolling forward. It was gaining steam, and he kind of wanted it to stop. He was a man of words, not a man of action. But nonetheless, he put the information out there, and people were able to see it uh, as it was. And that's kind of the way it goes sometimes, isn't it? We can hear a lot of things, and a lot of times it goes over our heads, doesn't it? For instance, look around in the denominational world, right? People who are members of, uh, of whatever denomination, I believe they're sincere. I think they love God and they want to do right. But they sit and they just listen and they just accept what's being told. But once you begin to dig in and read the written word, now things begin to take a different form. And, and that's kind of how Martin Luther's writings were. He put it on paper where people could sit down and look at it He began to translate the Bible along with Wycliffe and some of the other ones uh, in the common tongue and people could read what they were writing about it then they could actually read the Bible itself. And then they began to see some things that that was taking place. But uh, the Reformation began throughout Europe. We talked about uh, the uh, success of that Reformation movement particularly in northern Germany. Uh, uh, particularly following the the Peasants' War where uh, 100,000 of those who revolted against the Catholic Church were murdered. But we also noticed that within this Reformation movement that really all it was was a change of masters. They went from uh, being ruled over by the Catholic Church to being ruled over by the Protestant organizations. And they had about as many restrictions and and additional laws and and things of that nature that the Catholic Church had. But it was just a voluntary uh, voluntary change, whereas the Catholic Church, as it were, ruled with an iron fist, people voluntarily migrated toward this idea of Reformation and Protestantism. They were protesting, uh, particularly the uh, the Diet of Spires, uh, 1526, the the meeting or the... the, uh, the council that met, and again, remember, that's what a diet is. And they met in the town of Spires, and they, uh, in 1526, they said, hey, we're not going to uh, hold up our end of the bargain where we said that the Protestants could uh, uh, worship the way they wanted because the Catholic majority had come back into rule again, and so they were going to change that. But anyway, it all led to that. 
And so we see this Reformation movement uh, throughout uh, Europe. Switzerland and England had their own Reformation movements. A uh, man by the name of uh, Zwingli, he was a German uh, Switzerland reformer, and he led that uh, effort. Uh, Zwingli and, and Martin Luther were contemporary, okay? And uh, they didn't agree on a lot of things. They agreed on some things. But we see that throughout Europe it began to happen in 1526, the French Reformation began to take place, and things began to change over there. And uh, a man by the name of William Farrell, F-A-R-E-L, he began to preach. And uh, in 1535, after deliberating about the authority of the papacy, the, the, uh, the rulership of the Pope, uh, it, was, uh, it was abolished by the council and the principles of the Reformation were adopted in France. So we can see that it's making its movement toward other parts of Europe and, and the Catholic Church is uh, suffering a little bit at this time. Then we come to 1536 and a name that we recognize pretty, uh, pretty readily, John Calvin. John Calvin was... Uh, he, there's a whole doctrine based on his name, Calvinism. And uh, if we think about it long enough, I can't determine a single denomination in the world that doesn't hold some principle of his theology. Outside of Islam, uh, you know, some of the, some of the Asian uh, religions, but we're talking about people who hold that Christ is uh, Savior and that believe in the Bible. I can't think of a one. Even the, even the Mormon church, and we talked uh, about the Mormon church and different uh, uh, belief systems, uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, denomination, as we looked at denominational doctrines, they hold to tenets of what Calvin taught. So he had a big uh, influence in the world, but he came into the picture. Did you have something? He came into the picture in 1536, and uh, he arrived in Geneva, and he was convinced by this man, Farrell, that we uh, just mentioned, to uh, remain in Geneva and help him in his struggle against what they called a party of free thinkers. Free thinkers. Now, uh, free thinkers or free thought is the theory which regards truth as something that's based wholly on logic, reason, and empiricism. Empiricism is the belief that you can only know something for a fact if you can feel it, touch it, smell it, see it, uh, you know, the, the five senses. And uh, uh, we talked about when I was teaching the class on uh, apologetics over at the School of Preaching here in Chattanooga, we talked about one aspect of empiricism and why they, uh, uh, you know, felt like that Maybe that's uh, lent itself to agnosticism or maybe even atheism because you can't see God. You can't touch Him. You can't speak directly to Him. You can't put God in a test tube, as it were. And so uh, that's what this free-thinking movement was. And so uh, Farrell convinced John Calvin to stay in Geneva and help him fight against this movement of free-thinkers. Now, is every aspect of empiricism wrong? 
Well, not every aspect of it is, but it takes out of the equation faith, right? Faith in God. Now, uh, when we look at uh, the idea of apologetics or Christian evidences, empiricism has a place, right? We can see the universe is in existence. And because the universe is in existence, it had to come from somewhere, okay? So that's, that, that kind of gets us on the road to understanding how it came into being, and that has empirical uh, characteristics to it, right? So all of empiricism is not wrong, but when it, is, uh, when it says that exclusively and takes faith out of the equation, then it is a problem. Well, in uh, 1539, now remember, John Calvin came to Geneva three years prior to that. In 1539, the citizens of uh, Geneva said, hey, we're, we're going to denounce the, the papacy, we're going to uh, rebuke the Catholic Church, and we're going to embrace Protestantism. We're protesting. We're going to we're going to go a different route, and uh, uh, you know that helped to push this movement. Now, John Calvin, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, as far as his uh, impact on the Reformation movement because we know it was a huge one. Okay. And we've talked about his doctrines and things of that. But uh, just uh, understand that John Calvin was a big part of not necessarily the Reformation, but Protestantism, okay? Protestantism. And so ultimately, uh, Calvin's theology was accepted by most of the Reformers. That's that's the kind of impact that John Calvin made on uh, uh, the world. And his theology kind of reigned supreme among people who were trying to pull away from the Catholic Church. Any comments? All right, now, if you enjoy history, and I I hope we do because that's what we're studying, uh, over time, as this Reformation movement was rocking on over in England, over time you have... uh, Rulers coming and going. It's just like in any nation, right? In our nation, presidents come, they go. We elect them, we vote them out. Uh, Rulers would come and go in England. Uh, Particularly, we're going to talk about some things going on in England. Someone would uh, uh, become king or queen or whatever, and, and that was a lifelong appointment because they said God appointed them, right? Well... That lasted as long as the people allowed it until they up and killed whoever the king or the queen was and moved on to the next one, right? So rulers come and go, and that's what was happening in, in Europe. Well, eventually, a lady by the name of Mary, Queen Mary, you'll be familiar with her, she was crowned queen on October the 1st, 1553. Now, she was the daughter of Henry VIII. He's maybe one of the most well-known kings of uh, England. And uh, her mother was Catherine of Argonne, okay? And uh, after she was queen, her first parliament met four days later. Now, it's very interesting. This same parliament that met and crowned her queen was the same one that said she couldn't be queen so many years before. And we remember the story in history of Henry VIII and Catherine of Argonne. It was 
an illegitimate marriage and Henry got upset with the Pope because he would not give a divorce to his other wife and so Henry VIII left the Catholic Church and that's really where the establishment of the Church of England came from. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that Henry VIII was just 100% opposed to the Catholic Church. He was just an arrogant individual who wanted to do things the way he wanted to do them. He didn't want the Pope in his business. Okay? That doesn't mean that that he was necessarily opposed to the Catholic Church because I'd say he was probably one of the most godless, soulless people we ever read about in history. But uh, that's where the power was, right? So he was trying to take the power away from it because he wanted to be... uh, uh, the one in control. And so uh, Mary, because of Parliament reversing its decision, became the rightful or the legitimate heir to the throne, and it repealed all the religious legislation that had been put into place under Edward VI, who came after Henry VIII. Okay? Edward VI was... Uh, friendly to the Protestant movement, okay? He, uh, uh, he was the half-brother of Mary, so he was the son of Henry VIII, but he was friendly with this Protestant movement. He made great changes in the law, and uh, particularly laws affecting uh, treason. Uh, he, took, he took absolute power uh, from the government, which uh, his father had so meticulously created. He wanted to be the ruler in both the religious realm, the spiritual realm, and the the secular realm. And uh, now, kingly supremacy in matters of religion, though, still remained. Okay? We don't want to look at Edward VI and think, well, he was just this great guy. (coughs) He wasn't a great guy. But he helped to uh, move away from... Uh, the the uh, the great tyranny that so uh, characterized his father into something that was a little more moderate, and so uh, uh, as he was uh, uh, ruling over England, some big changes in the in the religion happened as well. Uh, people were allowed to take both the sacraments. Remember, we talked about that in the Catholic Church. The masses ate the bread, the, the, the priest or whoever was conducting the mass drank the wine, okay? And they used alcoholic wine, okay? Uh, and we talked about how that's not correct. But uh, also under Henry VI, a law was passed that allowed the clergy to marry, okay? said if you're a priest, you can marry. Uh, the, uh, the repeal of the bloody statute... Now, the bloody statute or statutes were laws that if they decided <clears throat> that you need to be put to death for, they could put to death for it, and it wasn't uh, controlled very well. Okay, We talked about Martin Luther, who was uh, sentenced to, de- to death under the edicts of the Diet of Worms. And so that would have been one of the... Uh, uh, something similar that was happening in Europe, though that was going on in Germany, but it was very similar. Something could have happened like that in, in England, and so they called those the bloody statutes. It also, because of that repeal, allowed a lot of refugees to come home. Okay, A lot of people left England, went to Switzerland, 
went to northern Germany, went to different places, and once these bloody statutes were uh, done away with, uh, things began to change <clears throat> in the nature of religion, they were allowed to come back home. So they decided they wanted to come back, and, and things began to level out a little bit, as it were, and they, they were able to enjoy being at home again. But Mary then came to power. Do you know what Mary was called, what her nickname was? Bloody Mary. Why? Because it fit. Right? Because it fit. She was a wicked woman. And uh, now, when she took the throne, she made a promise. I'm not, we're not going to push any state religion on anybody. But as soon as she was able, she began to institute Romanism again. She began to bring the Catholic Church back to power, tried her best to do that. Now, Bloody Mary was married to Philip of Spain. And as was common in those days, a marriage was formed as really a political alliance more than anything else. And so uh, if you had uh, the Queen of England marrying uh, the Prince of Spain, well, then you had a, you had a political alliance there, and it made both, both of them more powerful because they could team up against the rest of the world. But uh, <clears throat> that alliance or that marriage was very unpopular from the very beginning with people in England. So uh, immediately following her coronation to queen, a little time went by where she could grab a, a better foothold. Guess what she reimposed? The bloody statutes. If, you're, if you were declared a heretic under uh, Catholic law, they could put you to death. Uh, also, it says, uh, if we wanted to read some of the history, great care was taken in uh, making sure to elect only wise, grave, and Catholic sort to Parliament. Now remember, <clears throat> under Edward VI, things began to change a little bit. They were getting more of this Protestant movement, even within the government. Well, Bloody Mary, Queen Mary came into power. She said, well, let's put these Catholics back in. Let's put the Catholics back in. Let's, let's reimpose the bloody statutes. And uh, Parliament, <clears throat> after having done this, they reached out to the Pope and they asked for forgiveness and they repented and he gave them absolution for the schism that they had created in England. So the Pope forgave him, all is well. Uh, in essence, what that means is the money started rolling in again, right? <clears throat> money started rolling in again. You can start selling indulgences. Uh, you can start stealing the peasant's property. You can do whatever you want to do. You know, claim someone's a heretic, take their property. You know, uh, kind of reminds us of Ahab, right? He saw a vineyard. Naboth had a vineyard, and he wanted the vineyard. It was against God's law that... For him to sell his inheritance outside of his family, what did Ahab do? Had him killed. He went to his own bloody Mary, didn't he? Jezebel. Whining and crying. And she says, aren't you the king? Act like a king. And so she had some false uh, witnesses come about. And that's kind of what the Roman Catholic Church would do. So-and-so's a heretic. We, we'll gather up the witnesses we need. We'll have them put to death. And now they're out of our way. What's changed? Not a whole lot, right? 
And so <clears throat> that was going, going on in England. Uh, the Latin service was restored. Now, uh, they, were, they were not speaking in the common language anymore. You couldn't go into a, a church in England and hear, hear the message in English. They went back to the way it used to be, speaking in Latin, not the barbarian tongue. Now, I don't know why Latin was considered so great and English so barbaric. After all, <clears throat> what language was the New Testament written in? Greek. The common Greek language, Koine Greek, right? And so that what's the purpose of that? So the masses could have the gospel. The Pope didn't want that. Why? Well, if you could sit down and read for yourself what the Bible said, you're going to see pretty quickly what's going on in this uh, fiasco that we're calling a service isn't, isn't what we're reading about, right? So that was restored. About half of... Uh, uh, the clergy who had been deposed were fully restored. So now we're we're getting the uh, the priesthood back. We're the 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 clergy. They're they're elevating these men, and so those things begin to happen. Then we run into a fella uh, named by the name of Bishop Stephen Gardner. Okay, born in 1483, died in 1555. He was an English bishop, a politician, and he lived during this English uh, Reformation period. He served as Lord of Chancellor. That still exists today in England, Lord of Chancellor. Now, uh, the Lord of Chancellor is responsible for the efficient functioning and independence of the courts. Now that sounds pretty important, doesn't it? Uh, if we're going to have to, uh, uh, if a person is brought up on charges because they're deemed a heretic by the Catholic Church, wouldn't it be great to have a nonpartisan, independent uh, court system? Well, that'd be absolutely necessary, wouldn't it? Well, that all changed. That all changed. They went back to the other way, and so. Uh, uh, they secured passage of the uh, bloody acts again, the bloody edicts. Uh, and Bishop uh, Barner, Bonner, who was also a bishop of London, and the uh, instrumental figure in this schism of Henry VIII from Rome, he reunited with Catholicism. Okay, so what we've got there, we have Bonner, who is a bishop, and he's he's backing Henry VIII. Okay, Henry VIII's upset because he's wanting a divorce. Catholic Church won't give him a divorce. He wants to marry Catherine of Argonne. He has a child with her. Well, that tells us the character of these men, right? Bonner sees the writing on the wall, so he rushes back to the Catholic Church. He doesn't want to be on the outs because now they're in power. Well, when Henry VIII was in power, he didn't want to upset the king, so he backed Henry VIII in the Church of England. At any rate... Uh, during the four years of Bloody Mary's reign, and she only reigned for four years, she had a total of 400 martyrs murdered under her rule who stood up against her. And that's just the kind of person that she was. Any comments, questions? What? Oh, boy. No, no real uh, character 
traits that were firm in their lives. Okay, just whoever was in power. Kind of reminds us of our political system today. Uh, among those who were murdered as martyrs, and what was uh, one of the favored ways to martyr someone at that time? Do you recall? You burn them at the stake. You burn them alive. Uh, among those who were burned were uh, men by the name of Latimer and Ridley. Uh, they were bound uh, to the stake together. Uh, Latimer was a former bishop of uh, Worcester before the Reformation movement, and later he was a part of the Church of England, and he was chaplain to King Edward VI. Remember, broke away King Edward VI, son of King... Uh, uh, what did I say his name was? Henry. Man, Henry VIII... Uh, and then they began to uh, be a little more lenient, and his Protestantism came in. Well, he was a chaplain to, to Edward VI. Well, things changed. and uh, But anyway, as they were uh, uh, bound to the stake, Latimer looked over at uh, Ridley, and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. And that's exactly what happened. You know, people after a time get fed up with just the, the cruelty of tyranny, don't they? I mean, you've got two men who uh, all they did, and I'm not supporting them in their the theological beliefs, but all they did was stand up for what they believed spiritually. And it happened to be in contradiction to the Roman Catholic Church, and so... They were declared heretics under the bloody acts, and they were burned alive at the stake, brethren. That's what happened to them at that time. But Ridley here, uh, he was an English bishop who supported Lady Jane Grey, who was the true queen of England and the great-granddaughter of Henry VIII. And... Uh, uh, or Henry VII, and was a first cousin to uh, Edward VI. Now, how do we know she was the rightful heir? How was it passed from one to the other? Do you remember when uh, David was about to die, how, who he designated as king over Israel? His son Solomon, right? That's kind of how they did it in England. Edward VI was on his deathbed. He put in his will that Jane Grey and her kinship after her, the, the males of her family after her, would be, uh, she would be queen and they would be kings over uh, uh, all of England. Okay? Now, in part, he did that because his half-sister, Mary, was Catholic. And uh, Jane was a committed Protestant. Well, of course, uh, eventually Mary had both Jane and her husband and Ridley murdered, and so that kind of got them out of the way. Now, they didn't have any problems uh, with that. But, so we see uh, how the, uh, the changing of one's mind affects a whole lot of people. You've got Henry VIII, who was a Catholic. He got upset at the church. The Catholic Church, he separated. Uh, he began to, uh, he established his own church, the Church of England. 
we see that he had a son, Edward VI. He became king. He was uh, kind to that uh, Reformation, not necessarily the Reformation. It was the Reformation movement going on, but it wasn't necessarily uh, reforming the Catholic. They just started a whole other outfit. And so he was uh, friendly with them, and as he was about to leave this world, he said, well, let's keep that going. And then Bloody Mary arrives on the scene. She was a great politician. She was conniving. She was wicked. So she had Jane Grey murdered, had her husband murdered, had Bishop Ridley murdered, got the, them out of the way. And we see how it goes from, from something that is terrible to something that is even worse, right? They had tamped down Catholicism, but boy, when it came back, it came back raging, didn't it? And they were going to get even, and they were going to make amends for what had happened. Well, as long as she could... She kept the fires of Catholicism uh, burning to appease the God of the Roman Catholic Church as long as she possibly could. Now let's go back to what Latimer said. Play the man because we're going to light a fire under England that will never be put out. And then, boy, Protestantism really came into the picture more so than ever. Now remember, originally Protestantism was just simply protesting the spire, the diet of spires where, where they recanted on what they were going to do a few years early and give people the ability to do what they wanted to do. But now it really became in, came into a huge movement. Any comments? Questions? Well, I mean... You you can't make stuff up that's uh, that's worse than that, can you? I mean, you know, you can't write a book fiction that has any more uh, of these terrible things. You know, everybody's looking for passion and murder and action, and this is real life. Now, we look at Latimer and Ridley, and we talked about others who were burned at the stake, right? Now let's let's go back hundreds and hundreds of years to the first century. What happened to those men and women? Same thing. Same thing. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, in my opinion, the greatest evangelist the world's ever known other than Christ, was a big part of that persecution, wasn't he, before he became a Christian. He uh, held the, the coats of the men who stoned Faithful Stephen to death, he went to, when he was converted, in Damascus, he was headed there with orders to arrest people and put them in jail, both men and women. And then on the road to Damascus, he was introduced to the Lord, and then when he got into Damascus, he was converted by a man named Ananias. And then what happened to Paul eventually? He met his death as a martyr, didn't he, under Nero? sometime in the, the, the middle to later 60s of the first century. All the other apostles, Peter knew he was about to leave this world. Uh, we read about James being killed early on, the brother of John. John, the only apostle that, that uh, appears to have lived out a normal lifespan, and he lived to be an old man, right? He lived to be almost a century old, and so, uh, you know, he had a good long life. Doesn't mean it was an easy life. As an old man, he was on the Isle of Patmos, right? 
And, and when we think of the Isle of Patmos, he wasn't necessarily in prison. On the, I mean, he was in prison, but he was, uh, he was just put on this deserted island and fend for yourself. You know, I mean, uh, they may have had some guards on the island, but, you know, you're not going to get off the island. And the accommodations were not five-star. Right? You slept on rocks or the ground or, you know, uh, it, was, it was suffering. It was misery. In fact, in, in Revelation 1, he said, I'm your brother, I'm in the Spirit, I'm in tribulation. Right? He was, he was suffering. And so, when we look at these people who gave their lives for something that wasn't even uh, the church for which Christ died, but it helped push things back toward that, we ought to go back in our minds and in history and think about the apostles, the disciples who were murdered because of their true faith in Christ. You know, in, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John said, Listen, we're going to obey God rather than men. You see to it. You see to it. Reminds us, reminds us of Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, right? Uh, o king, our God's able to save us, but if he chooses not to, we still won't bow down before your God. We're going to do that which is right. And so, you know, it, as bad as this is, and it's terrible, the things happening to these people... You know, worse happened to uh, the Christians. Any other comments? Well, obviously, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, had a lot to do with the explosion of Protestantism. And so the people of England pretty quickly came to the conclusion that another lady ought to be queen, and her name was Elizabeth. And she was obviously in that lineage of people, but they said, hey, if we don't get rid of Queen Mary... We're going to have a civil war. The, the people saw the writing on the wall. And uh, they also assumed that she was a Protestant. And uh, a lot of things contributed to create that expectation because the young intellectual life of uh, particular young women in England at that time, they were largely Protestant. And so they felt like Elizabeth would be Protestant. And uh, that was especially true among the upper class, and she obviously fit that. Uh, they were becoming students in Latin. They were becoming students in Greek and Italian. And, uh, uh, you know, they became devout Protestants. One of the things that led to that, what were they becoming students of again? Latin and Greek. And they could see, this isn't right over here. This Catholic church isn't correct. And so they were largely becoming Protestant. And from that movement, uh, they had these distinctive leanings that, that became uh, what we know as Puritanism. Puritanism. Uh, who are the well-known Puritans that we read about in school in America? Ones that came over from England, right, to settle the, the New World. Puritanism. And, the, and, and one of the reasons they came... Religious freedom. They wanted to worship the way they wanted to, right? And uh, that was a religious reform movement of the 16th and the 17th century. Now, it was a reform movement, but guess what it wanted to purify? Not the Catholic Church. Church of England. They wanted to fix the Church of England. Right? So now we're going from fixing the Catholic Church, and now we've got to straighten out this Church of England. Now, how'd that come about? King Edward, or uh, uh, King Henry VIII, right? He started his own church. 
Now, that just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? You can't fix that which is eternally broken. And so, anyway, uh, they wanted to uh, uh, purify the uh, Church of England of any remnants of the Catholic Church, okay? And uh, which uh, uh, they uh, claimed had been retained after the religious settlement uh, reached early in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And, and, you know, and that's kind of been a characteristic. What, you know, we're talking about this is religion. This is something people are following because in their minds they're saying God told us to do it this way. But how do they come to terms with each other? They barter and they make deals. And, you know, again, we go back to Acts chapter 5. Peter and John didn't make deals, did they? We go back to the Old Testament. God's people then didn't make deals. But we're seeing this in this Reformation movement of both the Catholic and the Church of England. They're making deals with each other. And so in some of the deals made under Elizabeth I, they kept some of this popery uh, uh, aspects of religion. And so they wanted to... Uh, uh, get rid of that. Now, the Puritans became noted in the 17th century for a spirit of moral and religious earnestness that perpetuated and directed their whole way of life. And now we're seeing, now I want us to notice as we look at this, we're getting closer and closer. We're beginning to see people who are ruled by a moral compass related to their religion. Okay? Is Puritanism the new, uh, church of the New Testament? No, <clears throat> it's not. But we're seeing that gradual movement uh, to that uh, from that uh, aspect. We're not going to uh, go into any more uh, information about the Church of England, uh, but we will say this. The Reformation in England, by and large, was a great blessing to the, to the world. Why? Why can we say that? Again, because it helped to usher in what we eventually want to get to here, and we're not going to get to it today. Hopefully we'll get to it next Sunday, the restoration movement of the New Testament church. So we owe a debt of gratitude, I believe, as Christians to those men uh, and, and all people who uh, were able to push that toward the restoration. Now, uh, but in this so-called Protestant church uh, situation, there is no trace of the three fundamental principles uh, enunciated by their reformers, though, okay? We've got to keep that in mind. There, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just like Martin Luther espoused certain principles, but he wasn't willing to stand up. He didn't really want them to move forward. People who embraced what he taught and what these other people taught liked the idea of getting out from under the yoke of the Catholic Church, but they didn't really stick to what they claimed they believed. They didn't stick to the Bible as the only rule of faith and practice. Okay, They didn't stick to the idea that it was the duty of every individual to judge the Bible for itself. And we're not talking about judging whether it's correct or not. That's part of it. We have to be able to look at it and determine is it the Word of God, but more so in understanding what God has said instead of someone telling us what God said, right? That's what the Roman Catholic Church did. Or, or and, 
They didn't espouse uh, each member as part of the priesthood. We're all priests in the New Testament church, aren't we? We are a royal priesthood. That's what Peter said. We are peculiar people. We are set apart. We're sanctified. And each of us individually offer up the sacrifices that God requires. The writer of Hebrews called that, Hebrews 13, the sacrifice of the fruit of our lips, didn't he? So we'll sing, we'll pray. Uh, Paul said we are to be a living sacrifice. And so our life should follow what we espouse. Uh, Instead of all those things, they created... uh, Creeds and parliamentary control over church services and, and things of uh, and things of that uh, in place of those things. Any comments, questions? Now, what we're going to notice is within all of those creeds and those parliamentary uh, rulerships that uh, they uh, began to have a limited priesthood, right? They began to have it, it wasn't like the Catholic Church, but you still had the clergy. And we see that in a lot of denominations. We call them reverend, right? Uh, the Episcopalians, you know, uh, hard to imagine, but they're a little left of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they call them, they're a priest's father, and they still have priests, right? Yeah, pastor, pastor, you know, the misuse of the term pastor, meaning minister, you know, you go into a denomination, who's running the deal? The preacher, the pastor, right? That's, that's whole and apart from, from what the uh, Bible says about it. Uh, they, they began to embrace infant baptism. Of course, they'd been embracing infant baptism. That didn't change. Infant membership and a whole lot of other innovations and in, in things that uh, was brought about. This Reformation, of course, spread throughout Europe. Uh, Scotland, people began to change their theology, okay, began to look at some things. Now, uh, we're going to pick up next time, uh, and we're going to talk about the Scotch Baptists, okay? Not going to spend a lot of time on them, but it's very important to understand some of the changes they made that lent, uh, lent themselves to us getting closer and closer to... Uh, the uh, restoration movement. Any comments before we close? All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll pick up here next time.